background noise contributed to uh, some kind of hazy static that you might hear. Um, so in order to counteract that, we had to turn the volume down on our tracks, which made the audio a little bit softer than we would have liked. So you might have to turn your headphones up a bit um, to hear the tracks on this episode. But we still think that the content that we came out with is really worthwhile listening, and we hope that you guys gain as much from it as we did. So with that, let's take a listen to the first installment of The Hot Saddle. Brian, you might not have known it at the time, but you were, in fact, sitting on the Spoken Tour Hot Saddle. Let's see how it went. My name is Brian Calvert. I'm the editor-in-chief of High Country News. Uh, High Country News is a teeny tiny magazine based in Paonia, Colorado, which is a teeny tiny town on the west slope of Colorado. Um, I've been here for about three years. Uh, I'm here because it does sort of world-class journalism out of this teeny tiny town. Uh, basically focused on the American West. Uh, the big issues of the American West that tend to be natural resources and the environment and the different communities that live in the West and the sort of disparate communities and how they get along. Uh, so I came here from a fellowship at CU Boulder. Actually, it was an environmental journalism fellowship called the Ted Scripps Fellowship for Environmental Journalism. Uh, and I did that as a way to retool my career from... Uh, work as a foreign correspondent, which is what I did for the first half of my career. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Wyoming, so I kind of <laughs> fled to the small town. I wanted to kind of see how the world worked, uh, and then eventually I figured out how the world worked, and then I wanted to come back to the West. Uh, I wanted to report on the West, and I wanted to report on what I think is the biggest story for the West, which is climate change, uh, which has many, many dimensions. So uh, I initially was... Um, working as an independent radio producer. Actually, I wanted to produce a podcast in which I would travel the West and talk to people about how climate change was reshaping the region. Uh, and I started talking to High Country News about hosting that podcast. Uh, and then a job came up at High Country News, and I thought, well, why don't I take that job? Then I can produce a podcast and stories and, and learn a whole bunch. So um, I, after the first year, year as a sort of mid-level editor, uh, promoted to the editor of the magazine, so I've been there. It was a perfect fit, basically, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I feel really lucky to be here. Um, one of the reasons that we think it's pretty important to be in Paonia is that we understand that there's these mix of values. There are what seem to be an inordinate amount of churches here for the population. Uh, there are places where some people eat and some people don't. There's a diner where ranchers eat. There's sort of a bistro where you're there this morning. Yeah, where you're sort of you know pot trimmers go for breakfast. <laughs> so we gotta have like an interesting mix of economies here, and um, and the culture war plays out here. Uh, I think there's a very cynical culture war underway by um, powerful vested interests, which typically. Extractive industries or oil and gas uh, that have sort of pitted people against each other in a way that I think is unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, I come from a very blue collar family. Uh, I've worked in the gas fields. My dad has worked in the oil field and the gas fields. My uh, grandpa's a rancher. Like, I understand where a lot of people are coming from in the West, uh, and they're completely different from a lot of where other people are coming from in the West, and how to get those two sides 
not even two sides, multiple facets of any community to talk together, I think, is more difficult now than ever. Yeah. So I think it is much more, you know, in other countries, sometimes it's a much more homogenized sort of mm-hmm. culture. And so the, they don't have a big, huge rift like we have. Um, yeah. Which is kind of interesting to think about. I've never thought about that. But yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, culture rift happening now that's problematic. As, in the West. Yeah. Um, as one of the very few publications dedicated solely to the West, and you guys have moved around uh, within the West since you started, right? Mm-hmm. It was in Lander. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, over time and over space, do you think the voice of High Country News has changed with, mm-hmm. like, the cult- the changing culture of the West? Um, I don't know that it changed with the culture of the West. It just sort of changes with who's here. So a magazine okay. is just really, like, uh, comprised of people. Currently, as the editor, one of the things I'm very interested in is different communities of people who are reasserting their sense of place in the West. Um, a lot of different Native American groups and tribes are starting to re- reclaim their sense of place in the West. Uh, I think there's a huge Spanish-speaking population that has always been a part of the fabric of the West that High Country News has written about before, but not integrated as just a part of the fabric. Um, coastal communities, cities, High Country News hasn't always necessarily focused on them uh, because High Country News focused on the inner mountain west, for example, or the rural west, which is a very important thing to focus on. And given, you know, limited resources, you can only do so much. Uh, but uh, we're actually growing. Our subscriber base is growing. The amount that people donate to us is growing. Um, so our budget's getting bigger and our readership's getting bigger. So we get a few more resources that way. And where we're choosing to put those resources are into other communities. Mm-hmm. So we're building out our tribal coverage. We're building out our coverage of Spanish-speaking communities because those are all integrated part of, of a modern West. Yeah. And I think what we're trying to do now, the sort of modern <laughs> magazine in the 21st century, is understand how the West as a region can tell a story of itself to itself, but also be a lesson for um, other places or be a part of a larger conversation. So because of its fragile uh, climate and environment, it's on the pointy end of climate change, basically. We get our water from snowpack, or get our economics from, from trees and wildflower tours and um, a lot of agriculture. So all of those things are very delicately balanced, and then something like um, climate change comes along, and it's moving things along faster than perhaps our systems are designed to adapt to them. And so it's really it's really a matter of being honest about what a changing climate is doing to the delicate regional climate of the West, and finding the people who are interested in uh, doing something about that, uh, because what, what we figure out here in the West will sort of become lessons, I think, for places that are farther down the uh, timeline mm-hmm. for being in danger of climate change. So one thing that always fascinates me is bringing up climate change, bringing up those actual words to folks that may not be familiar with it. They're not 
sustainability gurus or, you know, whatever it may be, uh, you know, High Country News covers an area that has so many different populations of folks, so it's not that they're ignorant of it, it's just not on the front of their minds, you know, it's, there's, there's other priorities, whether that's the ranch that they're taking care of or the mine that they're working at. From your perspective, uh, how how do you deal with that balance of 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 not being that voice, uh, which which I think can be troubling in the environmental movement or or uh, this education around climate change of hey this is happening, oogie boogie boogie watch out. Um, you know how, how do you how do you find that that balance with with working with so many different communities and so many different demographics of, of people and, and landscapes? Yeah, I, I think you have to just understand climate change as a chaotic system that's undergoing a, a lot of shifts that are not very predictable. And so you don't really have to chicken little it. Um, the elk are doing great. <laughs> right? The moose aren't. <laughs> right? So they're just things are changing and you know people anyone who's has very many ties to the land that they know it they can see these things changing they may not totally understand the mechanics and they may have been convinced <clears throat> and they may have been convinced that we don't know at all what the mechanics are um, you know, I think that's a very cynical thing to try to convince people of uh, in fact we do know what the mechanics are of climate change. We don't know what it's going to do exactly. And so it's our job not to convince people that climate change is real, but to just bear witness to the changes that are occurring and do our best to help people understand why those changes are occurring. So understanding the mechanics of things as best we can, finding the people who are interested in knowing those things, generally researchers, finding the people who whose job is kind of a, you know, rubber meets the road kind of job, like a water manager, they have to manage for drought. They can't, they don't have the luxury of saying climate change isn't real. Yeah. Who cares what you call it? We're experiencing fluctuations in snowpack that are putting heavy demands on our reservoirs. That's a water manager's job is to figure that stuff out, and whether uh, he or she says so, you know, they're thinking about climate change. And I think what we find at High Country News, because we talk to these experts all the time at a certain level of management, both land, water, wildlife, you know, people who have to actually manage the resources know that things are changing. They generally know why. It doesn't really concern them whether or not people are going to own more Priuses or recycle or reduce their carbon footprint in some way. It's not necessarily their concern. Their concern is how do we give water to this community of ranchers while also serving the, you know, the water rights of the people who are on the ditch. That's just their job, but they have to understand a changing climate and drought and water cycles and all these things. So, so I think generally to, what we do is we just try to find specifics of the way the world is working right now mm -hmm. and be able to explain those in a way that makes sense. So sometimes there are mysteries and those make good stories. Sometimes there are answers and those make good stories. Uh, one of my favorite stories, you 
you can call it a climate change story if you want to. Um, but there's a researcher, and he works in the mountains up here, uh, Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory, Rumble, they call it. His name is David Inouye. He's a high country news reader. He lives in town here now after he's retired. But um, we did a story about him because he had done 40 years worth of flower studies, studying how pollinators kind of come into flowers. And what he noticed over 40 years of dedicated research was a shift in the timing of the blooms, which can get confusing for hummingbirds or bees. Well, that's just a story about a human person who loves hummingbirds and flowers and is like dedicated to science and knowledge. Is it a climate change? Well, yeah, he happened to figure something out on how our, how the alpine climates are changing for flowers blooming. But that's not a it's, again, it's not good or bad. It's just how many pollinators do you want around? Mm-hmm. If you don't like hummingbirds, it's a great thing. <laughs> you know, if you're trying to time a wildflower festival to your town's economy, it kind of sucks because you have to plan differently over time. Or you need to at least yeah. be aware that this thing is changing. So, you know, at, uh, at a town council meeting, you might decide that, you know, we actually need to move this festival back a month because the flowers are all blooming earlier. Those are just like real decisions you have to make because things are changing around you. And I think anyone who denies change in a chaotic world is kind of an idiot. But the previous administration had its own priorities in the way that they cared about the West. And we just wanted to get your opinion on what are the ways that this new administration uh, is caring about the West. Because it's undeniable that they do care about the West. It's a massive part of the population, massive part of the landscape. It's not that they don't care about the West. The way that they care is different, and we wanted to hear your take on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, so it's sort of like tricky to talk about the West as a sort of homogenous entity in that in that regard, mm-hmm. because it is this multifaceted region full of competing values uh, and uh, a history. Uh, you know, I like to say High Country News covers the American West, not the Western United States, which is to say we cover a gruesome history, a type of mythology, a kind of fantasy that is directly tied to the sort of progress of the American experiment. That's not to say we don't cover the Western states, which we do. These things play out in a geography. They also take place in this in more abstract realms. So they, to cover the American West is to cover a sort of abstraction on top of a geography. Mm-hmm. So the Obama administration made a priority of... Um, disparate groups, disenfranchised groups, um, minority groups, um, and this administration is not interested in that. It's pretty clear. So the new Interior Secretary, Ryan Zinke, just made a trip to southern Utah. He did that because his president ordered him to review these monuments that had been declared by the Obama administration. Uh, national monuments are declared when there are significant swaths of cultural or archaeological value that are not being protected enough. And the Obama administration decided that they would protect about 1.3 million acres of land in southern Utah called Bears Ears National Monument because it's full of artifacts and history. And that history is being 
plundered somewhat by pe other people who live in that area who go out, they'll find potsherds or arrowheads or archaeological sites, they trample on them, they don't respect them, they steal them. That's just one thing that's happening. And uh, to put some protection on that, then Obama declares this management, a special kind of management for this area. Uh, and inside that plan, uh, five tribes get a say, a big say, a much bigger say than normal in other uh, monuments. And that was, I think, a very big win for tribes in that region. These are sacred areas to their history, culture, their origin myths, and um, the societies that became before them. And Trump orders a review of these monuments. Uh, Ryan Zinke flies into Utah to start his review process. Well, he's meeting with the Utah lawmakers who are against the monument. All white men of a certain age, Republicans. He meets with them. He flies on the plane with them. He walks around with them. They are basically leading him through this review process. He didn't fly first to meet with the tribal coalition that was interested in managing Bears Ears. He barely met with them at all. He didn't meet with a delegation of them who went to Washington, D.C., although he did meet with a delegation of white lawmakers from Utah. So you can see there was a priority in this administration that's different. Now, is it a coincidence that these white lawmakers are all well-supported by corporations, oil and gas, and push a broader agenda of getting more development on public lands. Well, yeah, I mean, those, those things coincide. So, you know, it's hard to say what the priority is, although it seems to be uh, corporate. Um, but it also has sort of uh, racial elements to it, and a lot of these groups now feel ignored by the administration. And what could have been a very easy thing to sort of schedule balanced sort of review of these things. The Interior Secretary did not appear to be interested in that. And maybe he's got some big meeting planned that I don't know, but he certainly didn't take the opportunity when he visited the area to meet with all of the vested interests in that monument. And the, Does that even come close to answering your question? Yeah, that was <laughs> the, the public... The public comment period for that review mm -hmm. is ongoing until, is it the, the, the last day of May? 26th. The 26th? Yeah, that's right. Is there a way to best give your feedback, give your comments? Is that just adding your name to the list online, or is, is there a way that you think is best to, to give This is feedback? secondhand. I'm not like necessarily like a political operative. I just read Facebook like everyone else. <laughs> um uh, it seems like calling calling your congressperson is important. You know, I think the um, natural resources committees of the Senate or the House are sort of an important point in this. Um, but you know, I think if you're you know interested in this specific issue, yeah, public comment closes May 26. That's it's important to put you know <laughs> in a democratic society, you yeah. might as well raise your hand against something. Um, or call your congressperson, um, and if you think these things are a, a systemic egregiousness, um, 
I think it's time to think about 2018, think about who your representatives are and whether or not they're representing your interests, and whether or not you can politically mobilize for your own interests. It seems like another um, aspect of this tension uh, has been like the, the actions of the new administration, like this revision, um, and then kind of the unknown is obviously what is the result of the revision because it's pretty uncommon and then based on what the revision says what can actually be put into place by the courts and by the law because uh, one thing that's become I think clear to anybody who's been following uh, the new administration is that the checks and balances are being very heavily tested um, so I guess my question is like what um I don't want to put you on the spot and ask for a prediction, but what have you seen in the West as far as uh, like the limitations of the judicial system that's in place here versus kind of what's being handed down by the new administration in Washington? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to say. I think we've seen some things in the Trump administration where the, the courts just full out stop it. Yeah. You know, Muslim ban, for example. Uh, in something like this, you may, without action, you could see these monuments being shrunk, or if the executive branch tried to rescind a national monument, as far as I understand it, that would be a pretty major court trial. Uh, a, court, a court case would ensue from that, That would there's no precedent for it, right. so that would have to go all the way through the courts. So, you know, whether or not the, this administration feels like it wants to expend its political capital on you know, a court battle over whether or not a president can fully rescind a national monument designation under the Antiquities Act by a former president, who knows? Um, whether or not Congress will mobilize around uh, repealing the Antiquities Act is another question. Uh, but these get into big, big, big questions about what people value. A lot of people like the Grand Canyon. It's pretty hard to say, well, we shouldn't have had that. You know, that started as a national monument under the Antiquities Act and became a national park. It's the quintessential Teddy Roosevelt thing where in a national par- uh, national monument really needs to be big enough to encompass the cultural value that it provides and Teddy Roosevelt basically said, well, you can't have the value of the Grand Canyon if you don't protect all of this, all of this that you can see from here. Yep. So, whether or not the Republican Party is willing to go go to the mattresses over the Antiquities Act, which has created a lot of our national treasures, including in Utah, five national parks that bring in millions of dollars, whether or not the Republicans want to um, go after the Antiquities Act. It's an open question. I, I would be surprised, but I'm getting used to being surprised right yeah. now. So I uh, would want to say it could never happen. Um, I think a, one plank of the Republican platform has long been to transfer as much public land out of the federal trust into state trust. Uh, a lot of the West is basically comprised of federal lands, which have, let me, 
put this on the record, have never belonged to the states. The federal public land that lies within Utah's border were never Utah's to begin with, constitutionally not theirs. So this idea that this stuff should be returned to the states is uh, hogwash. It's my land. It's your land. Federal public lands belong to all of us. They're a public good. So if someone wants to come and strip away a public good and turn it over to the states for management, the states have a terrible track record of management, unless you're oil and gas. Uh, I think that's something that a lot of people aren't going to put up with, but it's this weird plank in the, in the Republican platform that just lingers so it gets chipped away at occasionally. Um, I think you're starting to see hunters and other sportsmen groups kind of center-right starting to really take notice of these threats to their public land. Um, I grew up dirt poor in Wyoming. We didn't have a lot, but we had public land. And it fed us. <laughs> we hunted on this public land. We cut our wood from the public land. So it kept us warm in the winter. Uh, we camped on it. It's where we had fun. I mean, it's just a huge, huge value to a lot of people that, you know, if you don't have much, you still have these, you know, especially in the West, massive swaths of land that are yours. They're everyone's. And if at the behest of very well-off corporations, certain lawmakers want to come and take that away, I'm not super excited about that. And I don't think a lot of people are, and I think you would see some political around that. Um, so, I, you know, I think those are, those are very interesting questions, um, and I don't know how it's going to play out. Maybe to get back to a lighter note, um, <laughs> sure. one, uh, uh, an Ed Abbey quote that I think we both uh, take a lot out of is his advice to people to be half-hearted enthusiasts and... Um, you say, uh, reluctant enthusiasts, half-hearted fanatics. Um, I guess, where do you draw the line between um, making a stand and then standing like for yourself to, to continue to enjoy public lands and to make sure that you don't burn yourself out on these battles that are happening you know, <laughs> far away from your daily life? Um, yeah, I guess... Uh, what, what kind of inspiration do you well, draw from? I try to be deliberate in what I do. Um, I hunt. Uh, I call it hunting. Sometimes it's just walking around with a very heavy stick. <laughs> That's a lot of what it is, actually. <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's just hike, hiking up steep hills and trails for no reason uh, in the dark. Um... But I, you know, I try to, um, I try to have a deliberate connection to the place around me, where I live, what I eat, um, what I otherwise consume. Um, I try to, yeah, I try to spend time outside. I try to do things in, outside of my brain because we have such a brainy job. It's kind of hard to escape the brain sometimes, so um, just doing physical things outside helps helps do that. Um, I might try to do a garden this year, but I'm just not doing them. I just 
whenever I try a garden, I just grow amazing weeds. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think why I'm undertaking an MFA in poetry, so I write poetry so try to create something yeah. create something beautiful that's like separate from all this mess mm-hmm. uh, try to be in things that are beautiful outside of all this mess uh, try to, yeah try to be in service of uh, a kind of universal beauty I think is important um, being on the land in a slow way I think what you guys are doing by biking is a commendable way to be in the world slow to see things um, and not just in that Ed Abbey sense too I can see where it's interesting connection there but but just in terms of being in place in your body and seeing the things around you and how they're connected and integrated and how all of that as a whole makes something beautiful I think is important I think we lose I think we're in a very fractured fractured world right now it's very hard to see how things are connected and and how beautiful they can be when they're properly connected. So I think when you take time and slow down, um, don't multitask, monotask, that just kind of helps you be in a place. Sometimes just go somewhere and breathe. It helps keep things in perspective. So that's what we try to do. Keep it in perspective. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, Brian, very much for giving us your perspective. Uh, We appreciate it, and we were uh, just very grateful that we got the chance to sit down and talk to you. Um, Brian mentioned several times the importance of raising your voice in our democratic system, and uh, we should all be lucky to have the opportunity to make our voices heard. And that is the main takeaway that we want you guys to have from this episode. And it is specific in this context to the Department of the Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke's uh, revision of these national national monuments, in particular Bears Ears. Again, that public comment period ends on Friday, May 26th. Uh, We have a link in our bio that will take you to a webpage where you can send a quick message to those who want to hear your voice about uh, what you think of the revision. Um, you have the ability to, you know, add. I think there's even a, the ability to add photos. You know, if you took a awesome trip to Bears Ears and you want to make it a little more personal, send in some photos. Just show them you mountain biking or climbing down at Indian Creek or whatever. Um, the more personal, the better. But it takes 20 seconds. Uh, every single comment is going to help the cause. Again, we wanted to put this episode out as soon as we possibly could because we only have a week left. And if you haven't been to Bears Ears, it is an absolutely amazingly beautiful, beautiful, beautiful area. Just a couple months ago, my cousin Thomas and I, we took our bikes and we did a about 75-mile bike tour in, in Bears Ears. So there's so much, so much, so much you can do there. It's absolutely amazingly gorgeous. Please raise your voice. Just... Click the link in our bio, take 20 seconds, and uh, just raise your voice, because that's what makes this country super awesome, is that we have the ability to tell people, no, we actually don't want you to shrink or remove this area. We want to keep it just the way it is, so we can keep getting super duper raw 
and messy and dirty and covered in that sacred red desert dust. So take a second, please click the link in our bio. Um, it would mean a lot. And again, you have until Friday, May 26. Spread the word. Send it to your buddies. Send it to your coworkers. It takes 20 seconds. Uh, but thanks for tuning in today. Uh, I know that this episode was a little different. Uh, content uh, to some would be a little more serious, but you know it's an issue that is pretty near to both Ty and my heart. So thanks for taking a listen, and we're gonna be pedaling. <laughs>